Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. So today we are speaking with Dr. Ira Bedzo. Ira is an ethicist and one of our crew on moral injury of healthcare. He's also the Associate Professor of Medicine and UNESCO Chair of Bioethics at New York Medical College. And Simon, I'm sorry that you weren't there to join us, but clinical medicine called. That's right, but uh, I'm glad to be able to listen to this and uh, think about some of the things that we can look at from an ethical perspective. Yeah, so let's have a listen. So Ira, I want to say thanks for coming and joining us today. Um, we've had a lot of conversations in the past several months, and it's been really enlightening for me to see it from someone else's perspective um, who... who you sit kind of in an ethics space. And so it's really interesting for me to think about moral injury in that context. But before we get started in the conversation, can you just share with our listeners sort of what your background is and how you come at the question of moral injury? Sure. Uh, I'm not quite sure like how long or how far back you want me to go. So um, I'll just, I'll just start. Um, but before I do, I, I also want to say, Wendy, uh, I'm, I'm, Grateful to, to be here uh, and having this conversation with you. Uh, I think that the work that, that you do and that Simon does in moral injury is not only really important, but at this point, very timely. Um, so to be able to have these types of conversations, I think, is a great opportunity, both for me to think about the issue, but also for a lot of people to hear about the issue. So, um, yeah. you know, just thank you for, for doing what you do. Oh, thanks. So uh, when I finished college... Uh, I studied uh, political theory and political economy, which really was a way of thinking about how people interact with each other. Right? Mm -hmm. Politics and economics are, are really, as much as they're fields of thought um, socially, um, they all really start with like what is you know rational decision making, uh, whether it's in terms of how people buy and sell goods or how people interact to create a uh, a, a community that that everyone benefits from. But if you really think about it, it's it's how people make decisions when they interact with others. And it was great. Like I really learned, you know, theoretically and abstractly what it takes to make good decisions. Uh, and then I, I went to work in real estate finance. <laughs> I know it's crazy. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> I told you I'm going far back. Uh, and I, I realized that everything that I learned uh, was super interesting and really great, uh, but it fundamentally missed the point. And when I say it fundamentally is the point, what I mean is we talked a lot about how people act in abstract without ever really considering how people actually act when they have to or when they want to. Mm. So it's really the difference, for example, uh, when you would say, I want to learn about golf by reading the rules of golf versus actually playing the game. So when I went into real estate finance and development, uh, you know, a, a lot of it was about, okay, how to build buildings and how to work with politics and economics and so forth. But the most important skill I learned was how do you uh, uh, create a proposal and um, consider all of the various stakeholders in order to be persuasive, not only to achieve what you want to achieve, um, but also achieve what they want to achieve. Not for my sake only, but for all of our sakes. Right. Right. Because if you can understand and appreciate what everyone gains, even if 
you know, it is a means of exchange and there, there might be profit and loss. But if you try and understand what, what everyone's interests are and you can accommodate everyone's interests and then also think about the logistics of being strategic and effective, that how to act makes your why to act so much easier. Right. So, you know, so after I, I, I worked in real estate finance, uh, I, I really wanted to go back to school to, to study character development. So I did a PhD in religion and I focused really, I know it's crazy. Uh, I really focused on the idea of um, not necessarily only how people think about making decisions, but how people's continual, continual decision-making process allows them to achieve the life that they want to live. And the person they want to be. And the person that they want to be, exactly. Their character their character. So instead of looking at ethics simply as, is this a good decision or a bad decision? Or um, is this act the right act or a just act? Um, I didn't look at a point on a line. I looked at ethics more as a, am I on the trajectory of making good and right decisions so that I achieve the goals, the values, and the beliefs that I have? Right. Right. So after I finished my PhD, I then realize that I can be a, a moral philosopher or a theorist, um, or I can go into a field where ethics is not only needed, um, but these types of conversations are lacking in an area that is becoming all-encompassing. So obviously mm -hmm. that's healthcare. Right. Six of the economy. Healthcare is a huge part of the economy, but as importantly, Especially today, most social issues um, and political issues have become medicalized. Correct. Right? Um, not only that, healthcare is not simply about treating individuals. It's looking at population health. It's looking at public health. Um, hospitals are getting involved in food distribution, in real estate, in right. education. Mm -hmm. Like By virtue of looking at this type of upstream type of model. So while healthcare is getting broader... Uh, you're still not being trained to think of things in a broad expanse, socially, politically, economically, morally, ethically, in a humanities base. So that's that's really how I got into and got very excited about being an ethicist in healthcare, because healthcare was no longer simply about treating individuals. It was about how do you want to perceive the world, recognizing that health was the value that at least everyone can agree on, despite the fact that we can't agree on anything else. Well, yeah, and sometimes we can't even agree on that, but, but you know, <laughs> so you basically came here to think big thoughts yeah, about how everything connects and about how people's values drive their interactions in that context. Yeah, very much so. Um, and and I, I recognize that I don't, I don't think healthcare should be everything. Like I do think healthcare should be one value among many other social values that we have. Yeah. But at the same time, I also recognize that even if I believe that what should be, should be, I have to work with what exists currently. So being in healthcare is, is important to think these big thoughts, while at the same time, we need to recognize that it's not only about the big thoughts. We have to figure out how to get all those small actions to align with the big goals that we have. Right. And, and how, do, how do we work not just within healthcare, but across the different sectors? Yeah. So that we're all working towards the same goals. Yeah. 
And, you know, it's funny. I actually think that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, and Wendy, I'm sure we're going to talk about this, but uh, that's one of the reasons why moral injury has has become prevalent. Um, because, you know, you, you train someone for a certain job and then you give them 50 others. Um, that's overwhelming. Um, and you just don't have the tool set to even think about how to accommodate all of that. Um, and you're, and you're going to end up making these big decisions with a limited tool base. Right. So how do you understand moral injury in the context of the work that you're doing now with, you know, embedded in all of those superstructures, for lack of a better word, but still happening at the coalface of care and at the intersection where students or, or clinicians are trying to treat their patients? No, that's a that's a good question, and I'm going to take a step back for it because my view or how I came to really appreciate what I see as the the diagnosis of moral injury, if you will, uh, really comes more from moral psychology than it does from these superstructures. Even though, as we recognize, psychology is always going to be embedded within a superstructure, right? Just by virtue of the fact that people both think and act within systems, uh, their psychology is going to be influenced by and influence those systems but so it, it goes to moral psychology and, and what, what i what, what i seem to stumble upon or what, what i become what, what i came to realize is moral uh, uh moral injury um unlike other types of injuries um uh, really has a fundamental um aspect of uh, self-evaluation mm -hmm. right moral injury really unlike you know physical harm um, or uh, other types of, or even burnout, really is an injury where a person has la lacks or has lost confidence in who they fundamentally are as a person. They no longer trust the decisions that they make because they feel as if they have made a wrong decision that speaks so to the core of who they are um, that that core has been injured. Right. Right. Like I focus on the fact that moral injury is a moral phenomenon. And when I say moral, I don't necessarily mean good or bad, right or wrong. I mean, it speaks to who they're, what they think their character is. Correct. Um, as much as it being an injury per se. Right. So the way I see moral injury in recognizing that is there must have been a moment or a series of moments where the person has um, acted or believed that they should have acted meaning they're holding themselves accountable for something uh, that they were not empowered to effectuate, mm -hmm. right? So moral injury, if you think about it, is different than guilt and shame, right? Guilt and shame means I did something wrong and I feel bad about it, but I, it, I did something wrong. Like, I did it. Yeah, I, I can own that. Right. Uh, yeah. Moral injury is I did something wrong, but I don't know how I got there. Like, something just, it doesn't, I don't know what happened and how I ended up being responsible, but I feel ultimately responsible for how this, this, this occurred. Or I know exactly how it happened and I had no means of escape. Fine. I, I'm actually seeing, seeing that as very similar, meaning mm -hmm. like I've lost my ability for choice. Yeah. Um, even if I know that I'm accountable for the choices that are being made. Right. Right. So, when you think about those things, when you think about, okay, I, I know that I have to make these choices. How, when you're in a situation like that, when I'm, when I'm stuck and I'm, I'm, I'm in a situation, I know what a patient needs, and I, because of constraints beyond my control, I can't get it for them. 
what are the decisions and and what's the process of making a decision in that context? You know, the ethical decisions that go with that. Yeah. This is hard because I think that's there's that's one question among many with this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, I think sometimes moral injury occurs because there was a series of small decisions that led up to this, where if you would have started earlier on the easier decisions, you wouldn't have gotten to the point of the harder one. Yeah. Um, sometimes uh, moral injury occurs not because of there's been big buildup, but it happens and the person is suffers just by virtue of the fact that they don't have the tool set. Meaning like if they could have learned how to give voice to their values or act in a certain way, then they might have felt more empowered as opposed to disempowered yet accountable. Uh, and then sometimes moral injury occurs, forget the fact that, you know, there were small steps going up or forget the fact that there were tools that the person didn't have in their, in their skill set. Uh, they just, they literally are just not, they're, they're just not empowered. Like the system just overwhelms and bulldoze them. So then the question is, why does the person feel accountable for something that there's no way they can be accountable for? Right. So it really depends on the scenario we're talking about in terms of how to deal with this morally. Yeah. So how do we think about that? And I guess maybe maybe before we talk about that part, I want to get a little bit clearer because I think when people think about moral injury, they often think about it in one of two ways. Either they think about transgressing their own deeply held personal moral beliefs or then there's this other concept that's based on Shay's description, which is a betrayal by a legitimate authority in a high-stakes situation. And so that's how I encapsulate the systemic moral injury, where this is outside of my control. It's a decision that's been made for me by my institution or an insurer or someone that I'm being uh, forced to make, and I can't escape it. So I wonder if, if for you, those two things are different and if they, if they compel you to make decisions in different ways. Right. So, I mean, they're, they're definitely different, um, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive either. I mean, you know, when you, when, and I, we, Wendy, we've, we've spoken about this, um, you know, you have individual actions, you have the, the structure, whether it's, you know, uh, hospital policies or healthcare protocols or professional expectations or whatever it is. But within those two different, you know, extremes, they come together and what creates the toxic culture. Um, but once you, once you see that, once you see the, 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 both the, the soft power of culture, um, but also the fluidity of culture, um, then you also know that there's two ways to change it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Changing culture is kind of like, you know, wading through sand. It's it's very hard. It's possible, right. but it's just really hard. Um, but you know, you don't want to put the onus on individuals to change culture, right? Well, at the same time, if you just change policies without having those policies inform and 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 be, like being bought by or 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 persuaded by the people who are acting, um, you're still going to have that disconnect. You know, so I I really think that you know changing. Or, or, or changing or, or, or trying to fix or ameliorate moral injury. And there's a difference, I think, between ameliorating moral injury and preventing moral injury. So let's, let's go mm-hmm. with ameliorating moral injury first, and then we'll just talk about preventing. Yeah. I think with regards to ameliorating moral injury, 
Like the moral injury already happened. Like the assault happened, right? So now the question is for those individuals, um, are they willing to or able to recognize their accountability versus empowerment um, disconnect? Um, are they looking to leave the environment because it is simply a matter of, um, you know, picking at a wound? Um, or are they able to change the environment? Right. So in two of those examples, they still stay. Right. right. You can say, I want to change the environment and stay. Or I'm not going to change the environment, but I'm going to realize that I shouldn't be accountable for that, which I'm not empowered to affect and still stay. Um, Obviously, there's different levels of success in the future for either of these. <laughs> right. um, but it's not just a matter of should I stay or should I go now, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think once the injury has happened, you really have to focus on the individual first. And then if they decide to change, then you look broader to the structure. If you're looking to prevent moral injury, um, I think the focus is switched. I think you really have to look at creating an environment that facilitates um, people's ability to speak and people's ability to act according to their personal and professional goals and values. Um, while at the same time, that's also not enough. You also have to, if you're going to empower people, you also have to give them the ability to act um, in a way that, that their power allows them to. It's the same, by the way, the same thing with patient autonomy. You can't say, oh, right. we're giving people... We're giving patients autonomy, but we're giving them no ability to make an informed decision. Right. And you also, and part of, part of giving people the opportunity to, to make those decisions is to give them the psychological safety to do it. Yes. Right. If, you do, if that's not in place, there's no way that people are going to feel like they have the ability to make anything but one decision. Yeah. Uh, you, you, I mean, you used a very strong word. Uh, earlier uh, betrayal is mm -hmm. something that's very hard you can forgive betrayal but it's very hard to recover from it um, right. trust is a social capital to use like a term in political economy mm -hmm. uh, that is very valuable and very hard very hard to 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 gain and where are we in, in your estimation where are we with that with that social capital of trust in healthcare right now like, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna clarify that a little further before COVID and in the midst, you know, we're not out of COVID yet. At this point, let me put it this way: um, whether before or after COVID, I, I don't think the phenomenon has changed so much. Truth be told, I mean, people are much more like exhausted. <laughs> you know, that's that, that's a whole separate issue. Um, but I think that um, the pandemic and all of the social disparities and racial disparities that the pandemic revealed. Um, revealing doesn't mean created, right. right? They were, they were there, right? Right. And people felt them. Now we're just able to talk about them or I shouldn't say able, we're willing to talk about them. Yeah. We can't look, we can't look the other way anymore and be okay with that. Right. So with regards to social capital, I almost wouldn't make a distinction uh, between pre and during, God willing, post COVID, mm -hmm. um, in terms of whether the social capital of the trust was there i think it's, it's it's just a recognition is different it's almost like you know the, the guy walking down the street who thinks his pockets are filled with money and then realizes that they're empty when he gets to the store they were always empty he just <laughs> right. thought he was wealthy before you right. know um, right but but when it goes to trust like I, I think there's a big difference between like the global and the micro scale like i do think that when colleagues work together 
Mm -hmm. uh, colleagues care and are very loyal to each other. Right. Right. Like when you are when you are working with someone day in and day out with the common goal of caring and curing patients, you may not like each other. You may not have similar interests, um, but you do have a bond. Right. So I think there the loyalty um, is much stronger. And again, not with everyone. I'm not saying this is ubiquitous, but you can see that common trend. Sure. Um, where I think a lot of the loyalty and the trust has been lost um, has to do with the difference between the people who are working. I hate the term frontline, so I'm not going to use it. The people who are working on the day to day uh, and the people who are making the big decisions. Right. I no longer think that physicians and nurses and other health professionals truly think that healthcare um, has their best interests in mind. And by the way, I don't only mean that in terms of the corporate aspect of health. I think that health professionals also think that they're used to have a much stronger professional autonomy mm -hmm. that has been chipped away by societal demands. Yeah. Whether those demands are valid or not, I actually think a lot of them are valid. But whether they're valid or not, the way that they have been presented and the antagonistic nature between health and uh, health and, and society pre-pandemic and now the weird position that health professionals are in, being both heroes and people in power, and it's politicized, and they're in the spotlight when right. like half of them don't want to be, if not all of them don't want to be, except for a few, uh, has put a lot of stress on the limited loyalty and trust uh, that was seen to, 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 to exist even before the pandemic. Yeah. You and I have also talked about this, that... Um part of the challenge in that is when you break that trust, you become us and them. And the longer you're in that, the less trust there is because there's more othering that happens. You know, there's more us and them and there's less curiosity. There's less understanding across. There's less respect. And part of, part of getting past that is to, is to find a way to reach across Right, and understand the other side of this both ways yeah yeah i mean you know i'm going to give and, and again i'm I, i'm i'm not political left politically right I, i'm not going to give these examples for any of these reasons but i just think they're really interesting examples when you think about it um so healthcare you know let's take two different relationships um you know one clinical and one economic um and you and you and you show me uh, how they they recognize a different trust or you know loyalty issues Right. Take doctors and nurses. Yeah. Doctors and nurses, there's a hierarchy. Um, and even if there's a, and there's a hierarchy, but there's a common goal. Right. Um, they have a very different relationship between physicians and the C-suite. Mm-hmm. Very. Right. They, they also have a hierarchy, but they no longer see themselves as having a common goal. So when you're, when you're in a situation like that, where you know the doctors in the C-suite have different different goals, you find yourself in that situation, and you know that that is the situation, which in and of itself can be a hard thing to recognize. How do you get past that? How do you how do you find ways to talk about that? Yeah. So look, I. I... <sighs> I'm not saying that the C-suite shouldn't have different goals than mm -hmm. individual clinicians. They need right. to. Um, it's the same reason why, for example, you know, uh, like different members who have different of a team who have different responsibilities, 
you know, have both common goals and individual goals, right? Um, like there's, there's this whole idea of stakeholder theory where different stakeholders have different things at stake. Sometimes they're aligned, sometimes they're not. Um, so I'm not saying that like, everyone's goals have to be aligned. Um, but people have to understand when goals are different, why they're different, and why that speaks to the greater ends of the organization or the community and the different individuals within it. Right. Like that's, that's a, a, a that's, that's, that's a clarity of purpose and it, and a ne necessity of communication that I think people are just taking for granted. Right. And taking for granted in what way? Meaning like either uh, you work for me, so mm -hmm. don't ask right. questions. So, right. Right. Or, um, you know, we'll give you branding and public relations, uh, language um, but doctors are smart. They go to school for a long time. They could see through that stuff. Right. Right. So recognize people's challenges. Healthcare is changing, inevitably so. Right. Um, and doctors who say, well, I don't like the way it's changing. I want it to go back to the status quo ante. That's delusional. Like we're not doing that. Um, but C-suite members who say, Healthcare changing, you know, like get on the boat or get off the boat. I don't know if that's an expression, but you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, that also is not helpful because you need physicians to be able to care. You need nurses and able to care, right? So we have to figure out a way to have these types of honest conversations about what the goals of healthcare is and what they should be, and where healthcare has its scope of practice and where it doesn't in order to make very good decisions about what's beneficial for healthcare, what's beneficial for the individual hospitals, the individual clinicians, and for society at large. Like, there is no, I'm going to rant now, there is no reason <laughs> why healthcare, because it's a nonprofit organization, and there is for-profit hospitals, but let's go with nonprofits, yep. should say, oh, we are uh, a, an organization that by charter is uh, invested in the community, so therefore, we should put everything and reduce all values and all goals through the prism of health and be in charge of everything in the community, as opposed to saying that we now have a profit that we now need to get rid of. Right. right? Work with other members of society and recognize what your goals and what you're good at. Right. And um, while we recognize the business of healthcare is important not all of healthcare should be deemed as a business. So yeah, when, sorry for the rant. Yeah, no, no, no. I love the rant. No, oh no, please. <laughs> um, so when we're, when we're looking at, at that very question, right. And physicians are facing this, this being in this environment where um, for them, the patient, patient outcomes, patient improvement, patient care is, is what's important and the business of healthcare is trying to take care of the organization. They want the organization to be well. But sometimes those, those goals and values may come into conflict. And I think a lot of times physicians struggle to know how to speak up in a way that the C-suite can hear or that the business side of healthcare can hear them and understand them. Yeah, that's a strategy. I mean, it's really a strategy. I mean, we're now talking about the how. Can you help us with that? Yeah, yeah. So look, now this like we're now getting to the to the question of we've already accepted 
Um, I mean, that, a question like that basically says we've already accepted and we need to communicate and we need to ask and we need to, to, to voice the value of we see a conflict, help us ameliorate it, right? Or help us minimize right. the conflict. And now you're asking, okay, right. how do we do that? Correct. Right? So, you know, it's funny. Someone someone recently asked me this question. And I, I, I mean, this is a many-step process, but someone recently asked me this question. They, they said, uh, look, uh, we're getting a lot of pushback from, you know, uh, healthcare regulations and patient advocates and uh, hospital leaders to uh, put all of these demands on us, and they're putting it into this 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 frame of patient safety and quality of care when we don't see right. it as quality of care. What can we do to push back on this? Right. So the the first thing yeah. I said to them is, all right. Well, I think the first thing that we need to recognize is that even if there is an internal morality of medicine and medical professionals do have some sort of professional autonomy, um, they're not islands. They don't stand alone, right? So medical professionals have to recognize that they're not only caring and curing patients, but they're members of society. So if hospitals and lawmakers are putting all these regulations on doctors, why do they feel the need to do that? What do they think doctors have that they're trying to limit? Once you understand that, then it might be easier to ask the questions of, is this really the best way to get what you want? Right? So I, I think it's the same kind of strategy first in terms of understanding how to go to leadership of a hospital health system, right? Like if you go and say, this is all of what you're doing to me, mm -hmm. right? Like, let's go back to my real estate example. Yeah. That's what we're doing to you. <laughs> but if you say, please explain to us what this does for you and why you think it's good for us, or do the research yourself and ask these types of questions and it, it, putting their stakeholding or their, their, what they're, what, what's at stake for them in mind, how you ask those questions can either close conversation or facilitate conversation, right? But be prepared. Right. And I think the other really, really critical piece of this is ask the questions. Be curious. Because you, it's really dangerous to go into a situation like that, assuming you know the other person's perspective, situation, pressures, pain points, all of that. Yeah. And the more successful you, you, can, you, know, you can typically be more successful if you go in saying, how can I help you with your pain point? While at the same time, I'm working on mine. No, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think preparation isn't only um, a matter of having all the answers before you go into the meeting. Preparation is a matter of being like having enough confidence to be able to learn something new within that meeting without feeling as if you're lacking something to have that meeting continue. Right. Right. Be able to ask the questions and think enough on your feet to learn from someone. Um, and by the way, part of that is recognizing that even if, again, just like these relationships, even if you have different goals in mind, you do still have the shared goal of the success of healthcare. Right. Right. So you can speak to shared values. Speaking to shared values is a strategy uh, of coming not necessarily to consensus, but to at least mutual understanding uh, that people forget. You know, it's very easy to have conversation and debate that looks for distinction. We are very good at finding distinction. We are not good <laughs> yes. at, we are not, we are not good at speaking from shared values, 
Right. We also go into these discussions typically thinking that there's only one right way to come out of it, and it's typically our way. And we tend to be unwilling with the with the acquisition of new information to then adapt what we're willing to come out of that conversation with. Yeah. Wendy, you know what I, I tell my, uh, both students and, you know, people who come to me and ask me questions with regards to medical ethics. Uh, I always say, uh, that they should come up with the answer first or come up with the choices first, mm-hmm. b- uh, before they think about the, about the ethical uh, process. And I don't mean that in terms of think about what you want to do and then rationalize it. That that's actually not what I mean. Yeah. Uh, what I what I mean is, uh, like, oftentimes ethicists will say, okay, well, let's look at it through a deontological perspective or a consequentialist perspective. But then they use these ethical frameworks almost in a limiting way, uh, where they the framework turns into a framing bias of, this says, we'll come out with one answer. Right. So I say, think about how many possible answers there are, <laughs> and then we'll analyze all of them through ethical frameworks. But knowing why an answer is truly bad or truly a wrong one might come uh, to a conclusion that you haven't thought of. Right. Like we always love to think of, okay, well, what's the good answer? But okay, how many bad answers are there and why are they bad? Sometimes they're bad because like we're just nervous about them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're bad and we recognize and articulate why they're bad uh, might tell us what values we actually care about as opposed to the ones we say we do. Yeah. Right. So be really creative. I love coming up with horrible answers because <laughs> uh, it just shakes up the, the, the commonplace of, is it this or that? Right. Right. Yeah. And I think it, it sounds to me like when you're, you're, when you're in that space, you are comfortable with not knowing what the right answer is, knowing what the right outcome is, um, but being willing to work together to, to figure out which one works for everyone. Or, you know, works yeah. best is the is the best fit for all. It's a good training to have. I think a lot of times we're trained, whether it's in medical school, business school, to think of like, all right, well, we need to we need to be right. We need to <laughs> have, be confident and know what what the answer is. And saying I don't know says more about our lack of knowledge than like liquidity or flexibility of the situation. Right. Um. But if we say, uh, look, I. I don't know. Let's figure this out. Right. Let's take a deep breath and say, okay, well, I'm okay looking stupid now um, because I know I'm not. Uh, that that might be okay. It, it, it's a confidence that, I'll put it this way. Humility is a virtue that the modern world has lost because humility has turned into, what is it? Um, insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um but insecurity and humility are very different. You can be yeah. a very confident yet humble person. Right. Well, um, I think that's actually a great place to, to wrap this up. It was super, super to talk to you. And um, we probably could talk for hours. So Yes, we definitely could. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for joining us today. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again. No, likewise, Wendy. Thank you. And uh, this was fun. I'm, I'm really glad we, we did this. Yeah. Thanks. Well, Wendy, um, that was fascinating. And uh, there's a whole lot to unwrap there. But I am curious um, about a couple of things because I've known Ira for a while and I did not know that he had started out in real estate finance 
and <laughs> his discussion about strategy and efficacy from from real estate. Right. Yeah, I, I just I think that is such an interesting it's such an interesting perspective to have to have gone so deep into another field and thought about human behavior from another perspective before you bring it back to ethics or into healthcare or anywhere else like that. Right. And as if real estate wasn't enough then to do a PhD in religion and to think about religion, not purely from a religious point of view, but from the goals and values and beliefs point of view. Right. And also the character development piece, right? That, that was the fascinating thing that I found because I've talked to Ira a lot too, and there were still things that I learned in this conversation right. that surprised me. And it was the that he went back to study religion to, to understand how to develop character. Right. But then from there, moved into medicine and recognized that hospitals have a whole lot more going on than taking care of patients. Um, you know, I think one of the first things he said was hospitals are involved in real estate, which of course <laughs> is not a surprise when you look at things from that perspective, but also education and social issues and these business issues that we see. Um, and I, I, I don't think that's lost on Ira. No, and to put it, I, I liked I liked this concept of putting medicine into the context of the broader community that it's part of, because that one line that he used of everything is getting medicalized. Right. I think that we like to think healthcare is separate from the rest of the world and that we can affect change in that one encounter, but really there are ripple effects from healthcare in so many ways, in so many places in our communities mm -hmm. and in the larger society that it's helpful to stay mindful of our position in the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that comes up when you talk about ethics is this idea of morality. And I really like the way that Ira thinks about this as not being about the good or bad of morality or the right or the wrong of the ethics, but it being a true core of the people we are. And so getting away from the concept of guilt and shame as part of this and speaking about it as, uh, you know, I think he said, uh, it, it, people feel with moral injury, at least I did something wrong, but I don't know how I got there or I've lost my ability to choose um, mm -hmm. and not seeing it from the point of view of I did the wrong thing or it's good or bad that I did this, uh, but I've lost control over what's going on. So, so important. So important. And then being able to talk about it in that way allows us to say, it's not that I'm a bad person, it's that I don't, that I'm disempowered. Mm -hmm. And so how do I go back and find the, how do I find my own way to being more empowered and to feeling like I have agency again? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Ira spent a while talking also about how to approach decision making and moral injury, how to prevent it, and how to facilitate an environment that gives people the environment to speak and, and, as you mentioned, psychological safety to do it. But there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you a little bit more about. One of those which I see all the time and I try and explain all the time is this idea of matching authority with responsibility. Mm. And so if you have responsibility, yeah. you need the authority to be able to do something about it. If you have authority, you also have responsibility to do something with that. Yeah. And I think there is no more horrible feeling than to have responsibility and no authority. Right. And kind of that, that not kind of, that absolutely brings about moral injury when mm -hmm. you see that with a lot of physicians in the current situation. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I think one of the other things that he said that I really liked was this idea of uh, trust being the social capital that we need and how important it is to have trust and how hard it is to regain trust when that's being lost. Yeah, and, the, and I think this is from parenting, <laughs> but it takes nine reparative actions to overcome one destructive action. Mm -hmm. So just keeping in mind how it only takes one time. And then you have to go back and repair a relationship nine times or seven times or whatever it is with each person that you've destroyed the relationship with. Yeah. That is pretty powerful. Well, we tend to think of our work life as being something unique, but it really is a whole lot of relationships. And those relationships follow the same rules that our personal relationships follow in terms of maintaining them, the trust that's needed, and repairing them when things go wrong. Right. Um, I guess the other final point that I, I, I really thought was important to underline was the ideas about bringing change and making change. It's the idea of understanding and preparing and asking questions. Super, super important when it comes to focusing on what needs to be done. Yeah. And, and I, I think the other piece that goes with that is feeling like you have permission to ask those questions. You have permission to be curious. And I think people underestimate the power of that curiosity in understanding the other person and, and how that in itself can help repair relationships. Absolutely. Well, Wendy, um, such an important episode and um, just a fantastic conversation looking at what we've talked about from just a slightly different angle. So thank you for doing that without me, but I really enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, we, we wish you'd been there. So our next episode will be with Dr. Hannah Cartman. She's an assistant professor in the School for Social Work at Smith College. And she's going to talk with us about how she has been effective in changing some of the mental health structures in Massachusetts. And as always, thank you so much for joining us for Moral Matters. Please continue the conversation on Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare. Instagram at Moral Injury. Twitter at WDMD and Simon Talbot MD. And our generic handle at Fix Moral Injury. And thanks for rating and reviewing, as always. When you give us a rating or when you subscribe or share the episodes, more people can find us. And we are inching up on 6,000 downloads already. So what you're doing is working. Excellent. Thank you. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks. Thanks.